Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. And tonight we're talking about the 14th lecture in this series, Zionism in Triumph and Crisis, 1952-56, or the question better is put is like this, what's the point of Zionism once you got, once you got Israel? What's the point of Zionism once you got Israel? How do you find an identity and a mission once the mission is accomplished, so to speak? It's a fair question. It's a question which really kicks in, I would argue, um, in, the, in the post-Israel, post-1948 period, especially in the, it begins to assume its outlines, my argument tonight is going to be in the years 52 to 56. Zionism, of course, has a broad definition and has a narrow specific definition. You might say capital Z and small z. And broadly, of course, all of Judaism is Zionist, right? Certainly all traditional Judaism. I mean, the Psalm Rebbe is a Zionist. He's in Eretz Yisrael, central to his Judaism. He wants very much, he, when he was alive, he wanted very much to go to Israel. He just wanted to be only in a front way, and if it wasn't done in a certain way, then he's against it. But he's not against Israel, and that all Jews should be there, and so on and so forth. So that's because, he's not as a follower of Theodor Herzl, but because he's a follower of the Chumash. <laughs> you know what I mean? So all of Judaism, uh, all of, of traditional Judaism, is very Zionist. On the other hand, that's not usually what we mean by the term Zionism. Narrowly, Zionism is a generic term which refers to four distinct phenomena. Political Zionism, cultural Zionism, social Zionism, and religious Zionism, okay? Uh, you have political Zionism, thus, with Herzl. You have cultural Zionism. You have religious Zionism, Rabbi Reines and, and Rabbi Mayor Berlin, who, who made the Mizrahi, hence the RZA and the RZ. And, of course, you have Ben-Gurion, who is a combination of a lot of these. Now, uh, we'll focus one at a time. And political Zionism is a very clear and easy thing to describe because it had a beginning, a middle, and an end. Political Zionism is 1897 to 1948. The first Zionist Congress was started uh, in Basel by Theodor Herzl in 1897. And the idea was, to go, I'm talking about Herzl now, the idea was to get a Jewish state. It took them 50 years and they got it. I know it's up and down, we've talked about that, but it, you know, that's what political Zionism. It's a movement which had a specific and clear goal, and that goal was to get a Jewish state in the land of Israel and Palestine. Okay? And it happened. It didn't happen 100% the way we won, obviously, and they had to settle for half and so on and so forth, but they got it. All right? Now, um, well, not exactly. There's, I mean, if we talk about political Zionism, it gets interesting. I mean, Herzl started it. Kaim Weizmann picked up where Herzl left off. Herzl saw the Kaiser of Germany and all the other big shots in his time, but then died young. Weizmann, as we all know, got the Balfour Declaration. Jabotinsky, after the Balfour Declaration, said, let's declare that we want a Jewish state. Weizmann and Jabotinsky were fighting all during the 20s and 30s. Weizmann said, we don't have to say a, a, a Jewish state, because that'll tick people off. Let's just talk about moving towards some kind of a Jewish entity. And uh, as you know, Ben-Gurion brought it to fruition. That's, that, that, that's the short... Uh, part of the story. But there's also a diaspora component to this, right? I mean, you wouldn't have gotten Israel without people like Abihel Silver energizing the American Jewish community to pressure the American government. We've learned that. It couldn't have happened just from the e efforts 
of Weizmann and, and, and Ben-Gurion and people like that, you needed a, a joint effort. And so Abba Hill Silver is a classic political Zionist. Okay? He's, he's active, oh my God, he was active in organizing for the purpose of getting a Jewish state, which they did do. Now, political Zionism never been a mass movement, it's a tiny elite. Obviously, the people engaged in negotiations and political activity, all the rest of it, are a tiny group of people. The only thing, they want an organization behind them, or at least the appearance of an organization behind them, but it's a small group. I mean, Chaim Weissman was a one-man show. Theodor Herzl, to be perfectly honest, was, a, was, a, was it? Theodor Herzl was a one-man show, and so was the case with others. So uh, it is what it is. After 1948, however, what exactly, what exactly is politi political Zionism? Abba Hill Silver wants to continue political Zionism, I repeat, continue political Zionism after Israel has been established in the form of the ZOA, the Zionist Organization of America, play an active role alongside the Israeli government in formulating political policies, etc. American Jews, American Zionists, and similar types in other countries, he argues, have much to offer. His Zionism, very interestingly, is one which sees two Jewries cooperating, Israel and a diaspora. Now that's the way it's happened on the political level, it's down to this very minute. He's just very upfront and blunt about it. Um, it's a good question, what is the definition of political Zionism? Hear me out. There's, everybody agrees you want to have a Jewish state. But what happens once you have a Jewish state? Does it therefore follow automatically that all the American Jews should move to Israel? Now the Ben-Gurion, the answer is yes. The only, he's a monolithic kind of, uh, you know, single laser-like focus on the idea that Zionism means simply every single Jew without exception should make Aliyah. On the other hand, Abihel Silver, and, and most others, to be perfectly honest, so I guess not necessarily, you know, Zionism means that the, you have the Jewish people in the world, the Jewish people want to have a state of Israel, but they also want to live in Baltimore. And, uh, you know, you can visit. And they support Israel. And the fact that you support Israel means that even though you're not living there, you're participating in its growth through contributions and, you know, visits and things like that. The, the exact thing that's, that's happened in the last 60 years. You see? Um, Ben-Gurion, of course, said, that's baloney. So what you really are talking about are two visions, two distinct visions of Zionism. One is one that envisions like a, a, a multipolar Jewish world, in which you have Israel as number one, but you have other places as important diaspora centers. If you want to model, it's Bayesheni. Back in the time of the Second Temple, there was a Jewish state of some kind or another in Judea, in Israel. You had a base of Migdosh even, at times they had political independence. But there were also very large and important Jewish communities in Bavel, in the Greco-Roman world, throughout the uh, Mediterranean, for example. I'll give you one example. Egypt. Many of you have heard of the famous gigantic synagogue that once upon a time in Alexandria, which coexisted with the temple in Jerusalem. And the argument would then be like that. That's very good, you know, for, for on, on many levels. And then you have the counter-argument, which is that's all bad, and whatever they did in the past was wrong, and that all Jews belong in Israel, and that's the end of it. I don't want to hear two ways about it. Ben-Gurion's uh, attitude towards Abba Hill Silver and the people like him are, uh, no way. If you want to participate, make Aliyah. If you don't, shut up, offer blind, knee-jerk support of whatever the Israeli government does. After all, we Israelis are the ones who have to live here in the Middle East. We're the ones who have to live with the consequences of our actions. You American Jews do not. 
And so I'm not interested in your opinion to do this, that, and the other, because you don't have to pay the price for it. I'm the one who does. Don't tell me you're in favor or not in favor of reprisal rates. We're the ones who are living over here, and we have to, you know, exist in, 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 not in the Midwest, as uh, Moshe Zayan said, but in the Mideast. And so that's the way it goes. Philosophically, therefore, you have two distinct points of view about whether a diaspora Judaism is legitimate in any way whatsoever. And of course, he would say no, and he would say yes. Um, there are consequences to this, as we'll see before I'm done tonight. Uh, in addition to this, why would Ben-Gurion want to share power? Why would he want to let go of his dictatorship? After 1948, he's the boss of the Zionist movement, he is the, even though he has opponents. He's the boss of the Israeli government. His party has uh, the, the supreme power through the uh, coalition of arrangements that they put together. And um, at, in the years after 48, Ben-Gurion wins an absolute victory. Um, and you have, for the next 60 years, pretty much a rather subservient, politically subservient diaspora until very, very recently. Um, from time to time, there have been these phenomena. Let's go to the next one. But only recently, you have like J Street and that sort of thing, in which you have the diaspora barking back and, and, and biting Israel, okay? Although they're claiming to help. But if you think about it, all during the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and into the 21st century, whatever Israel does, we go out in the street and demonstrate on their behalf. What Israel decides they want to do, you lobby your congressman. That's what you want the APEC for and all the rest of it. it I mean, it's kind of interesting in that way. <coughs> to his left, what I talked about, Abba Hill Silver was an opponent of his to the right. To his left, Ben-Gurion wants to make sure that his opponents do not use the Zionist movement to undermine his rather hardline security policies. You see, there was a Zionist movement that continued, whether he wanted it or not, in the shape it did. They had a World Zionist Congress in 1951. They had one, I remember, in 1956, so twice during the period we're looking at over here. And on each occasion, Ben-Gurion was hammered from the left by people like Martin Buber, uh, the famous philosopher, philosophy professor in Jerusalem, who say, who are like peace now, you understand? In other words, they say Ben-Gurion's policies are all wrong and that they're un-Zionist. Now, I know it sounds funny, but nevertheless, that's the argument that they make, that it's un-Zionist. You see, Buber and his guys, most of whom are uh, professors in the Hebrew University, um, literati, uh, you know, uh, intellectuals, usually from Central Europe, they want already at that time a binational state. They also want the right of return, by the way, as part of the program of political Zionism. Now, everybody's entitled to have their opinion, and they advocate for this within the context of the world Zionist movement. You know what I'm saying? They make speeches like this. This is a little bit weird after 8, 1948, and you have the Grand Mufti still running around, and they have Nasser, all the rest of it, but they would disagree with me. And they would say that I'm wrong, and that the other um, options have not been explored, and that the other paths have not been tried, and they were in favor of a binational state from the day one. And they have an argument. The argument is, what's the point of setting up Israel if you have the whole Arab world against you, and they'll never stop? And if we always have to sleep with a gun in your hand forever, and it'll never go away? And, and, and what do we gain? Of course, you have the counter-argument, which is, you're crazy, a binational state, right, to return the Arabs will never share anything with anybody and they'll kill you all. I, I, I get it, and so do you. I'm just simply trying to tell you what happened. Uh, Buber and the uh, left-wing Zionist, political Zionists, also are very liberal, and therefore they want an end to the military government over the Israeli Arabs. During the years we're talking about in the 50s, understand this well, there are about 180,000 uh, Arabs in, in Israel. I'm talking about citizens. Approximately 180,000 uh, Arabs in Israel. Later, they took a few more back, so let's say 200,000 out of a population of close to a million, 
or thereabouts, a million and 1.2, something in that area, uh, uh, 200,000 were Arabs. Um, the Arabs were um, under uh, martial law uh, for almost 20 years, okay? And are to a certain extent till today. And uh, in the years I'm talking about, where the vast majority of the Arabs that live in Israel, primarily that's in the Galil, where the majority, uh, you're in, in a, it's a curfew. You're not allowed to leave your town without special permission from the army. Okay? And it's as simple as that. And uh, this was a part of the law. The British had these laws on the books in the Mandate of Palestine when they were there for security reasons. And Ben-Gurion very conveniently never abolished them. He said they're part of the existing laws and they used them against the Arabs. Now, um, why do you use them against the Arabs? To Ben-Gurion, it's obvious. It's a fifth column. If I was an Arab, I'd fight against Israel. Second of all, look what's happening in Algeria. Uh, Ben-Gurion's telling us we don't want Algeria in, in Israel. Um, it's necessary, therefore, to keep them down through um, um, a certain dictatorship. And uh, once you do that, so they're under a certain police state, which is kind of funny, because here you have Israel, which is always claiming to be the only democracy in the Middle East, and the Arabs do have a vote, so technically it's a democracy, but in, in anything other than that, it's not a democracy if you're Arab, because you actually live under a certain regulations that are militarily enforced. And you can't get a job without the Shin Bet approving it. And you can't, uh, literally, you can't move from town to town uh, without the Shin Bet approving it. Let me just give you an example. Suppose a bunch of Arabs ended up, uh, after the fighting was over in 48, here. And they used to live over there. But the Jewish agency took them there, and now they settled a bunch of Jews over there. They don't want, the army doesn't want these guys going back and saying, where, where, where's my house? And so the army says, even though you used to live here, you've got to stay here. And tough luck. So it's very interesting because today you couldn't get away with it. You have what you call CNN, right? And I'm, I'm saying you couldn't get away with it. At that time, they got away with it. It's, it's very interesting. So you can understand the Martin Buber type approaches, which said that this is very anti-democratic, it's almost apartheid, it's this, that, and the, whatever you want to call it. But Ben-Gurion, as I say, said, I don't live in the Midwest, I live in the Mideast. And if we do what you do, we'll have a huge terrorist situation, we'll have a huge fifth column situation, and all the rest of it. But it was a harsh reality, is what I'm trying to say, and these two guys, this is the CIA, this is the FBI. He's, in he's the Mamune, he's in charge of all the security services. And he's in charge, Amos Manor was in charge of the uh, Shin Bet, the Shirud Bitakun Kali, the General Security Service, which is the FBI. And um, there the FBI is, it has a lot more power in those days. Actually, there were no constitutional limits on power whatsoever. There's no constitution in Israel at all. And consequently, um, they could and did implement this for till 1966, till 67, and parts of it still remain in shape today. And I'm not sure it's a bad idea because if you don't have this, the person who becomes the principal of an Arab school where they have all Arab kids is Marwan Barghouti or something like that. And then what are they gonna teach in the schools? You know, so it's, 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 it's a, a rough, it's one that's a challenge to democracy, okay? It's a challenge to democracy. But nevertheless, you had it. Um, there is a real basis for the opposition to the military government, which unfortunately came very uh, real right in the middle of the Sinai campaign. This is the part they don't like to talk about, um, what you call the Kfar Qasim massacre, because um, this is, this is a, Kfar Qasim is on the way, when you get out of the airport and you drive north, it's on the main highway, you know, on the coastline. It's one of those Arab towns that the tour guides always see. Here's this Arab village, and here's this Arab, and they're not villages, they're big, aren't they? Here's this big Arab town, here's this big Arab town. So one of them is Kfar Qasim, and it's on the, in other words, on the border where Jordan is, or used to be, I mean, the West Bank. And um, 
it's, it's October 9th, 29th, 1956, and Israel's starting the Sinai campaign, and the army is going into Sinai, and they're afraid that maybe Jordan will, will join with Egypt and attack Israel. That didn't happen. And so the orders are given to the Israeli uh, army officers in charge of all these Arab towns administering the uh, military government, uh, make sure there's no trouble. But the orders are not very clear. And so you can, if, you, if you're a local commander, you can, you can uh, interpret it whatever way you did. 99% of the commanders interpret it in a sane fashion. But it only takes one. One of the commanders interpreted it in an insane fashion. And so he said like this. He says, we're having a war with Egypt. The Arabs might get out of hand. And so we're imposing a certain curfew tonight. And anybody you see in the street should be shot. Men, women, and children. In fact, I want people shot. Because they said, a lot of people don't know. They're coming back. For, they don't know. They're coming back from work. They haven't been told. Could be children. Don't worry about it. You see them, you shoot them. I think to shoot people send a good message. And so they shot a whole bunch of men, women, and children uh, over the next day. And Israel tried to hush it up because it's very embarrassing. But the Arab members in the Knesset, because there are Arab members in the Knesset who were, even at that time, some of the Arab members in the Knesset were, you might say like this, uh, stooges of the Mapai, and some of them were Arab Arab. And the Arab Arab guys, they uh, brought it up in, in, in Parliament and so forth. At the end, the Ben-Gurion was very embarrassed about the whole thing, had no choice, they held, they held a trial of the uh, officers who said, yeah, we did it, and we felt that we're doing the right thing, and it's part of the emergency situation, and so on and so forth. And they asked him, you shot men, women, children, just like you didn't even know about it. And uh, they, they weren't very apologetic, and it got a certain amount of world attention. This all happened in 1957, and uh, it's a bad episode. And they were all given prison sentences, you know, but they were all pardoned within a year or two. Get it? Uh, you know, once the, uh, the, the international media attention moved away, so little by little, they all, they all, they all got pardoned and they, uh, and they went back to where they were in the, in the first place. So you can understand, like I said before, you can understand a very tricky situation. On the one hand, you're worried about an Algeria. On the other hand, uh, you're also, what are you doing? You're shooting men, women, and children. How's it go? So the town has this, this is their Holocaust memorial, as it were, to their own Holocaust, if you follow what I'm saying. And uh, if you're a kid growing up in this town or nearby, what do you think of Israel? Not that they need any, any uh, extra pushes, but it is what it is. So political Zionism ain't so pushy as they say over here. Um, so the point I'm generally making is that in the wake of 1948, political Zionism kind of dies and is replaced by pro-Israelism, which is not the same thing. Pro-Israelism, they want to spread across world Jewry, and in the 1950s, it kind of does. And so even groups that were not totally, uh, you know, for, for Israel or whatever, will change and get on the bandwagon. And then it's not a question of Herzlian Zionism, and you have meetings in which you talk about the theories and, you know, what it's supposed to be. We already have in Israel, warts and all, as they say. The, as you just saw, the, the state, having a state is the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's not, it's not all glorious. Uh, but, but, but there it is. By way of eulogy, it should be noted that Herzlian Zionism, uh, this political Zionism, with its focus on narrow Jewish interests and a concomitant Jewish pride, saved many a Western Jew from civilization, intermarriage, and racial uh, yish, racial giving up. Uh, this, this was the main point of, uh, I mean, these are the two big political Zionists who focus very much on the political. What I mean by that is, and I'll give you an example of what I mean in a moment, we'll have some fun with this, is, but what I, what, what, what I mean is that um, if you went back 100 years ago, don't expect too many people 
with a college education in, say, Europe or something like that to become from. Right? That's extremely rare. But a lot of these people, as a result of their education and the culture in which they find themselves and want to join and adapt to and integrate into, uh, look down on their Jewish side and kind of want to sever all connections with it and, uh, and feel bad about the fact that they're born Jewish and consider a big umblick, you know, big misfortune, all the rest of it. And then they discover Zionism in 1905 in Paris or Berlin or Vienna or somewhere like that. And they find that here is a secular Jewish movement which is not ghetto-like and is very modern and advanced and forward-looking and very Western, but, very, but emphasizes pride in Jewish. Could be Jewish culture, could be Jewish, and, and looks forward to the Jewish people as a group that deserves dignity. And just like the Bulgarians have a state and the Serbians are in the state, so the Jews also can have a state. This triggered or touched buttons in the thousands, tens of thousands of young Jewish intellectuals, boys and girls, men and women, and um, has the effect, as we would say today, of making them Bali Chuba. I don't mean Bali Chuba in the religious sense, but I mean Bali Chuba in the general Judaic sense. And that they turned away from a total assimilation and instead embraced their Jewish identity, not in a religious fashion usually, sometimes usually, but nevertheless in a fashion in which uh, the person doesn't feel like that classic Jewish uh, student uh, who long ago who finds that he's Jewish and wants to commit suicide. You understand that Jabotinsky has to write that famous letter where he says, no, there's no point in committing suicide. You take pride in it and move forward. You see? Uh, that was in South Africa, by the way. So anyway, these kind of things come together. It, it gave the westernized, non-religious, and secular Jew a reason not only to stay Jewish, but to take pride in it and work on its behalf, which is why Rav Cook was in favor of it. This is no reason. You see? Rav Cook uh, was very familiar with Western Jews as well. He used to travel a lot, and he saw the positive effect in terms of Jewishness that um, the Zionism engendered and uh, among many, many Jews, again, not in a religious way, but in, in, in many Jews, and encouraged, and, and in his opinion, anything that wants them to be Jewish is something to be encouraged. The religion will come later, hopefully, you see? But it, 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 that, that's the way he, he, he saw it. Now, um, hold on for a second. The, uh, a, a, a wonderful example of this, yeah, a wonderful example of this is this, I'm going to have fun now and show you a piece from line, an extended piece, which, but I'm, I'm going somewhere with it. And this is uh, when Menachem Begin is elected Prime Minister of Israel in uh, May of 77. So uh, Jimmy Carter is the president, need I say more? And uh, in July, after he put together government, he invited to Washington for the first round of pressure. And if anybody recalls this, because already we're talking about 30 years ago, 40, 40 years ago, actually 40 years ago, so, uh, uh, so he came to New York, and before he goes to, to Carter, he, he has a whole bunch of meetings with Jewish leaders, including all the big rabbis. You know? So he goes to see Rabbi Soloveitchik from the, uh, from the religious Zionists, of course. He goes to see Moshe Feinstein from the Agoda. He goes to his house in Lower East Side, you know, the apartment. So he, you know, Moshe Feinstein, Akhra Kamenetsky, and all, uh, all that. And, uh, and then in the evening, he goes to the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Lubavitch is already a high-tech operation, so they film every moment. You understand? You know, Ramosha finds his house. Maybe somebody took a photo. Maybe not. He says, Lubav is already, they film every moment of it, so I'll show you over here. And um, I'll, I, I'll tell you the story beforehand, and then you'll see it in, in, in a context. And that is, um, you see it very close. And uh, I'm, uh, here's the point I want to make. How does Menachem Begin uh, know the Lubavitcher? After all, he's not a Cossack. 
He's actually from a misnogic background, from Brisk, and uh, so forth. And the answer I saw many years ago, many, many, many years ago in a Yiddish paper uh, from Dr. Lake, Dr. Simon, back in the 50s, um, the, uh, there was a lady who came to the uh, Lubavitcher Rebbe, in the, right in the time we're talking about, and her son uh, is going to marry this, uh, uh, he's engaged, he's marrying this, this woman who's not Jewish. And the mother's tearing her hair. And the son doesn't want to hear anything, and the Rebbe should talk to him, you know, or do something about that. Not religious. And, uh, and she gets the son to go see the Lubavitcher Rebbe, and he says this, and that, and the other. It doesn't mean anything. You understand? And uh, you think like this, the Lubavitcher Rebbe? It doesn't mean anything. And the Rebbe's tearing his hair. What do you do about this? And he's asking the guy, what's your background, so on and so forth. And the guy was in the Irgun, right? Among other things. He had been in f- fighting in Palestine during the late 40s. And uh, he went in about the Irgun. So he mentioned this Dr. Seidman, who used to be a columnist for the Yiddish paper, some people may recall. And uh, he, Dr. Seidman's like this, Menachem Begin is visiting in New York. I'm going to talk to him. And by the time it's all over, they summoned this guy back to the see Lubavitcher Rebbe. And he says, I know about this. And there's Begin. <laughs> and Begin's like this, are you still in the Irgun? You know, are you still in the Irgun? Yes, sir. You know, because if you're in that culture, uh, how do they say it? Hamafaked. You know, he's the commander, and so forth. At the end of the story, Begin said, "Listen, I can't tell you to uh, affairs of the heart, but this is this is a, a treason to the Jewish people. Right? This is the opposite of what we fought for." And that started to give the guy bad feelings. And by the time it's all over, he changed his mind. And the end of the story is he didn't marry her. He ended up marrying a Jewish lady. The point of the story being that um, is it, it, why did he make the decision that he made? It wasn't out of religious motivations. You understand the person I'm talking about is not religiously motivated. It's out of nationalistic motivations. It's out of political Zionistic motivations. It's out of Jabotinskyism. It's out of the Irgun and that whole culture, which spoke to people at that time in a way that it wouldn't work today. You see? I couldn't conceive of this <laughs> happening today. But as a result, um, the two men, I'm talking about Malcolm Begum, became very close over the years, even though Begum wasn't religious, he wasn't a Hasidic, but it has to do with this kind of overflow or, or uh, what shall I say, this uh, kind of blurring of boundaries when it comes, in some cases, to political Zionism on one hand and religion on the other, even the two are not identical at all. But here, you'll take a look at this. This is in July of 77. Light up, yeah. Seven seventy, of course. Thanks for the people of Israel 
said it's Jacob. He's a great uh, lover of the house of Israel. He has uh, shown his deep sentiment and love for our children. His blessings are very important to me. I do hope they will strengthen me. That very important mission I am trying to fulfill uh, during the meetings with President Carter, the President of the United States. Whatever I say to the rabbi and he says to me is between us. There is an old custom between us for many, many years. It's not my first meeting with Rabbi Shemes. We met many, many times. And I still serve my people in opposition. But the more so than I am Prime Minister. Every uh, conversation with the rabbi is completely confidential. So you will not ask me on television or on radio intimately to tell you what we talked about. So you see, he talks, he said, we've known each other many years. The original context is this very interesting interplay, I would argue, between political Zionism on one hand and Judaism and religion on the other. But in the years uh, 52 and 56, uh, the model of political Zionism is in the process of being replaced by the model of APAC, which is something else. Uh, the truth is, the father of APAC is John Foster Dulles. Because he, I mean that, because, I mean literally, he, he was the Secretary of State and uh, started getting lobbied by Jewish groups. Uh, the Eisenhower administration right away in 1953, you'll be shocked to hear. And uh, if I drink up, because in the morning it's the ZOA, in the afternoon it's the Mizrahi, then it's the labor Zionism thing. There's the Adasa once you see it tomorrow morning. So he said, can't you guys get your act together? <laughs> you understand? And he pressured them. He said, if I meet with the Jews, let it be one, you know, one group and all this sort of thing. And they said, we can't agree. And Abdullah said, like, you've got to agree because I can't spend all my time meeting with, you know, with the ladies auxiliary of uh, Shamri Amuna, you know. <laughs> so, like, I mean, I have all respect for, for, for the women's uh, organization of Topeka, Kansas, but you know, you've got to be real over here. And uh, the result is they, that they formed together the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, the presidents, conferences they call and all the rest of it. And so he's the one who really created the Jewish lobby in the form that we have it simply because the federal government said, if we're going to be lobbied, at least have one face that we deal with and so forth. That's different than political Zionism. That means that you're taking in as wide a tent as you can of American Jewry, goes without saying. Logically, in light of all these developments, the World Zionist Organization ought to have been dissolved. You should say mission accomplished, and that'd be great. We set up our, a plan to set up Israel. We saw it through. Nobody saw, said we could do it. We did it. We, we uh, you know, adjourned sine die, as they say. And not in the real world, <laughs> okay? I mean, uh, let's put it this way. There was already a vast, vast, vested bureaucracy. There's a lot of people make their living from, uh, from the being in the Zionist office and being the schnorrers and being the secretaries and being the public duration of directors and all the rest of it. What happens to their pensions, as it were? There are too many jobs, and so the World Zionist Organization continues, and it does until today. But what's the mission? You see, we know that you got a job, we know you got a salary, what's the mission? Of course, if you're a bureaucrat, you say like this, we'll figure out the mission. Meanwhile, keep, <laughs> keep paying the salary, right? I mean, what is the mission? Uh, supporting Israel? Uh, battling anti-Zionist Jews? That fight has been won. Israel has happened, okay? Um, in the period I'm talking about, by the time you get to 52, 56, a vast change has gone over Reform Judaism. It's been Zionized. Prior to 1940, yeah, prior to 1948, uh, classic Reform Judaism was always characterized by being opposed to political Zionism. 
It's specifically political Zionism that what they were against. They didn't want a Jewish state because this would cause dual loyalty questions and this would mean that Judaism is a uh, nationality and they were very strong to say it's only religion. The idea being we're 100% American and our Judaism is nothing but a religious affiliation. It's no different whatsoever than our Protestant and Catholic neighbors. They have their own nationality, which is American, and their religion. We have our nationality, which is American, and has to be Jewish. Unfortunately, it doesn't quite work like that because the Jewish religion is a mishmash of a combination, as we know, of religion as well as nationalism, as well as who knows what else. But uh, Baltimore's own Rabbi Lazarus was the leader of one of the big leaders. He was in Baltimore Hebrew. One of the big, big leaders of the, um, what do you call it, of the uh, anti-Zionist movement among the uh, uh, reform. Uh, I want you to understand, uh, President Roosevelt sent him to England in the Blitz to, to preach. I mean, no, he was highly thought of, okay? And, uh, and yet, in, in, in the wake of 1948, he's fired. I mean, not, they, they do it in a nice way, but he, he's kicked out. And uh, used to be that Abihil Silver was the weirdo, the outlier. There were very few prominent Reform rabbis, classical reform. Remember, I told you, Abba Hill Silver was the reform reform. They had no, no davening on Shabbos. They were Shabbos. The Saturday services were on Sunday. Okay? So it was the real reform, and he was a super Zionist already in the 1910s and 20s. So you could count on your hands, you know, Stephen Wise, Abba Hill Silver, two, three, four, five other guys, and then across the country, everybody else was anti-Zionist, but the political Zionists don't have to fight this battle anymore because by the time you get to 1952, the reformed Jews, in general, have moved into pro-Israel camp. The questions about nationalism don't interest them anymore. And I think it's also pretty clear that in the liberal America of the uh, ever, but certainly in the 1950s, uh, nobody's going to charge you in the wake of the Holocaust with dual loyalty and all. I mean, that, that, that's an old bugbear. You know, like, like where's that going? That's not what happens in America. Uh, classical reform, in general, has to transform itself in the wake of the Second World War because, in a very interesting way, they had sort of uh, got themselves into a certain narrow niche. You see, the reform movement was primarily the German Jews. We all know this. And it swept like wildfire through the German Jews in the 1800s. So by the time you get to the late 1800s, almost every, with very few exceptions, almost every German Jewish community has switched to reform. Almost every Jewish house of worship across the United States has switched to reform. There is a couple exceptions, but Ruba de Ruba. But it was 300 Schultz. You understand? By the, time, by the time you get to 1900, it's 300 temples. By the time you get to 1945, it's 300 temples. You see what I'm saying? In other words, they box themselves into a narrow demographic. And so they're well-to-do and this and that and the other, but it's too small. And as happens, when you don't grow, you go. And so the membership was getting older. You needed new blood and, 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 and so forth. And, uh, and they realized it. I mean, they weren't dummies. And they realized this. And they said, you're concerned with sweeping the country. And we want a piece of the action also. We must change with the times to attract the mid-century demographic that I spoke about last week. We're not catching the attention of the people born in America from Eastern European parents who were born in the 1910s, 20s, 30s, and 40s. And that's the future, okay? If we all just stay with the old German Jews, all the rest of it, the old ones are going to die out, and too few of the young ones, as is the case in these situations, will be interested in being active in the temple to keep the place going. So we've got to bring in new things, and the result is that they switch their leadership, Rabbi Eisendraft becomes the big macher there after the Second World War, and they double their numbers because they ch make whatever change they're necessary. As I'm sure many know, this is the period in which they put on the yarmulke, they adopt the bar mitzvah, they put on the talit for, for people, they... Um, make a lot of moves more in a traditionalist type of direction, they pick up Hanukkah, a whole host of things 
that before then were discountenanced now are countenanced. And the most important distinction is the complete and total embrace of Israel and Israel culture because the new members coming in are people who come from Eastern European kind of background, who, who, who when I see Eastern European kind of background, understand me well. If they're thinking about joining a Reformed temple, they're not Orthodox or anything like that, God forbid, but they're, they're coming from a background of Yiddish-speaking families, so they wouldn't understand a, it, it doesn't make any sense that in a synagogue there's no yarmulke. It just doesn't sit with them, not that they're so religious. And they don't understand that the bar mitzvah is, 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 is something that you don't want in favor of, 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 a, of a confirmation. I mean, you know, they all had bar mitzvahs when they grew up in the Lower East Side or the equivalent areas of Baltimore or Philadelphia or Boston or, or, or Chicago or whatever. And therefore, Jewish folkways are then a natural part of Judaism and the reform movement is willing to accommodate them in order to bring them in, and they succeed. Okay? So, um, Abba Hill Silver is not an outlier anymore by the time you get in the 1950s. Almost all the reform rabbis embrace Israel, and the temples become as rah-rah for Israel, and Israeli dancing, and, and Israel bonds, and all the rest of it, as anybody else, you see? Because that message of being you know, only a... Uh, religion and not a nationality and not caring about Israel. When you read in the New York Times that the Arabs just blew up a house in Israel, that's not going to fly in the 1950s. Okay? So uh, the anti-Zionists among the Reform are totally marginalized by Berger and the American Council of Judaism. I mean, you can count on your fingers. It goes the other way. By the time you get to the years 52, 56, you can count on your fingers the number of Reform rabbis and leaders that will come out against Israel. Even the ones who in their heart of hearts don't like it, shut up. They change their tune because that's what the public wants. So, uh, you know, you see that this way, um, this sweeps all across America, and um, as far as John Foster Dulles is concerned, the monolithic Jewish support of Israel is Israel's most powerful weapon, and I would say that's true even till today, right? Uh, what's, what's Israel's number one weapon in the international arena? It's the American Jews, if they're perceived by the decision makers to be united on the subject of Israel. That's why these different groups that break the ranks like the J Street and all the others are so dangerous because then the politicians who only care about power and money, you know, then perceive, oh, I can get away with voting against Israel and a lot of the Jews in my own neighborhood will support me for it. You understand? Uh, fortunately, that message hasn't gone through to all the congressmen yet, but it's, it will and it's very dangerous. The monolithic American Jewish support for Israel starts in the years I'm talking about, at the beginning of the 1950s, and it certainly sees Israel through 60 years, okay? And all the presidents, and, and thank God, and all the congressmen, thank God, and the, great, the overwhelming majority, say, Israel, that's all my Jewish voters care about that, you know, and I, I, I got to be right on that. It's, you know, if I want to get their vote, I got to be right on this thing. Then I can vote other areas on, on, on other matters. So it, it is what it is. That's as far as political Zionism is concerned. Now, what about the other Zionism, the Zionism of culture, the Achara Ams? By that, you have a different meaning. This is a different movement altogether, although it blended together with political Zionism. This is a movement that started in the late 1800s from the Haskalah in Russia at that point. And the, he's an atheist. And therefore, the cultural Zionism is an atheist phenomenon, meaning it's one that rejects Jewish fundamentalism at, at a very base, at a fundamental level, and uh, wants to reconstruct and reinvent Judaism as a culture, as a national uh, group, as a, a national kind of uh, you know, civilization, and put whatever you want. But uh, the analogy for a Chanaam is not Judaism and, 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 and Catholic and Protestant. The analogy for him is uh, Jew, Jew, Jews and Englishmen and Frenchmen. Right? Uh, the English have an English culture. The French have a French culture. Jews have a Jewish culture. 
The English culture is not religious. A little bit of it is, but basically it's not. Same thing with the French and the German and the others. The French and German and the Italian other culture is not religious. A little bit of it is, but most of it is not. Okay? It's regular. Same thing for the Jews. The Jewish culture should be a, a culture a little bit maybe religious, and if a Khan has his way, he said religion is on the way out anyway. It turns out he was right in terms of Europe, wasn't he? Europe has, religion has pretty much died in Europe. Um, and he foresaw the same thing for the Jews. And so the result is he wants to completely redefine it. And this comes to be called cultural Zionism. So we're talking about reimagining Judaism over here a hundred and some years ago without the traditional Torah mitzvahs. And in their place, it's a different Torah, if you will, reinterpreted in modern secular term and a different set of mitzvahs, therefore. Uh, certainly forget about Shabbos, Kashrus, and Tarz Mishpacha, but nevertheless, uh, vital to those who are into it. Now, in Europe and in Palestine, in other words, outside of the United States, cultural Zionism is explicitly atheist. Okay, that's what it is. Achanam writes that way. So do the other writers over there. They despise religion. They see it as a backwards phenomenon, as something that's negative for the Jewish experience. It's a little bit interesting to how art make the argument that Judaism isn't essentially a religion, but they do make that argument. I'm not going to go through the particulars of it right now. And in Europe and in Palestine, where this is part of the general cultural ethos anyway of the 20th century, it kind of works. It gets traction. In the United States of America, however, things are different for a variety of reasons. Need I repeat what I told you last week about Eisenhower's America and the role of religion in America? America in general, as we all know, I'm sure everybody here in this audience is aware, America is considered a weirdo in Western world because there's still such a high rate of religion. The Europeans think we're crazy over here that you still have 45 to 50% of people going to church. Right? I mean, it just doesn't make any sense to them. It can only be explained by certain crazy strains that somehow or other survive in this nutty culture called the American culture. They don't get it. Alexis de Tocqueville was, was wondering about this in the 1830s when as a Frenchman he visits over here and is shocked by the vigor of religion in American life and particularly when there's no state-controlled religion, unless, as he surmises, maybe the fact that there is no state-controlled religion makes religion vital. You know, they're already talking about this in the 1830s, 200 years ago almost. So, obviously, in, in, in later terms. Moreover, the circle of Jews at the beginning of the 20th century who are interested in the ideas of, fascinated, the ideas of Hanaam consists of American Jews for whom, thanks to American culture, Judaism is a religion. They care very much about religion. I'm talking about the, the best and the brightest of the American Jewish youth and young upcoming group literally 100 years ago, 120 years ago. Uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, Cyrus Adler, uh, Henrietta Zold, Dr. Friedman from Baltimore, Mordechai Kaplan. These are young people who are educated in the United States. Most of them are born here. Um, they're, they're, they went to public school. They went to college and university. And at the same time, for what, each one for his own reason, passionately interested in the Jewish part. But remember, this is before Herzl and all the rest of it, they're Americans and they're very happy and proud to be Americans, but they're intensely interested in Judaism. But the Judaism they want is a Judaism that'll sell well or integrate well into the 20th century and into the modern world. They care too much about religion, even though there are a bunch of Amaratsim over here, but nevertheless, they care too much about religion. Uh, look, they can't do shots and post let's face it, uh, without which you can't really know Judaism. But nevertheless, they mean very well. They're, they're passionately interested in their Jewish stuff. And so you want the ideas of Solomon Schechter, but you want it refracted through a religious lens. And so um, they take the ideas of cultural uh, Zionism and they make them the essence of the Jewish religion. Hear what I said? They take the ideas of cultural Zionism and they make them what um, the Jewish religion is in America 
Anyway, and they dubbed this, of course, conservative Judaism. Okay, don't jump ahead of me. The movement away from fundamentalism is common to all mainline Protestant denominations in the USA in the 20th century. That's the big story of religion in this country in the last 100 years. The move away from religious fundamentalism of any kind. Take a look at, at the monkey trial. Right? What was that all about in 1925? William Jennings Bryan represents the face of fundamentalism. Clarence Darrow, who was an atheist, represents the, 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 the face of modernity. Who won the trial, especially in public opinion? You know, this is a, uh, almost like, a, like an iconic American moment, isn't it? And, you know, the good guys won against the bad guys. That's how American, that's how I was taught in school. You know, this is, this, this is, this is the cultural message over here. Now, the, the fundamentalist Christians don't see it that way, but the regular American culture does. And so the people, I'm talking about Cyrus Adler and all the others, they see it that way also. And consequently, um, they want a Judaism which will not be tied to fundamentalism, to belief in Torah, Mitzvah, Torah, Messina, and all that sort of thing. Um, and nevertheless, is committed, I like to say to nomianism, where the idea that, Ju that Judaism as a religion has a certain content and, and mitzvahs. Maybe not exactly the mitzvahs that you find in the Torah, but a lot of them and a lot of new ones as well. Mordecai Kaplan, in particular, um, is, predict is adept at uh, traditional Jewish notions of religious fundamentalism and nomianism. Um, at the level of Jewish education. And uh, he creates modern Jewish education. Uh, Mordecai Kaplan, this is what is, now they call Reconstructions, but until 1950s, or even a little later, he was part of conservative. And only later he's, he's branched off on his own at a very old age. And so most of his productive life, um, he's a member of the conservative movement, and uh, a very gifted person, uh, maybe Ron Gashkafas, who is very gifted at a uh, student of John Dewey, I might add, has, uh, uh, who sees the future of American Jewry lying in Jewish education, which is correct. And he leads the movement to organize um, all across North America what we would call in Baltimore the Board of Jewish Education and the equivalents across everywhere else, and, um, and to create a uh, professional Jewish uh, teacher with uh, teacher colleges and, and, and uh, organization of uh, curricula and uh, everything that goes along with being a, a a, a parallel, if you might say, to the public school system, except teaching Judaic studies, just it shouldn't be fundamentalist, right? The kids should be understand from the beginning the Bible is not really a word of God, and uh, the stories are just stories, all the rest. But Alpha became, people should want to enthusiastically be a part of uh, Jewish culture, and his model is followed down to the present day all across North America with disastrous results. But it's followed and has been, I mean, how much millions and zillions have been poured down the rat hole of the Talmud Torahs and the uh, afternoon schools uh, and, and the, you know, the, in the religion schools across the country and creating that legion of kids who hate Judaism and run away the minute the bar mitzvah is over and all, I mean, you, know, you don't need me to tell you about that. Uh, and all, it, 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 it's, it's money and, and time and energy wasted, but they meant well. <laughs> they meant well. It was just, it was just wrong. Now, um, we say, I say that today in hindsight, standing year 2014. It's clear, we're talking about something that went over 100 years. And uh, you see cultural Zionism, therefore, especially the period we're talking about, was a huge phenomenon that swept and captured the attention and the support of American Jewry, right or wrong. I'm talking here as a historian what happened, not what should happen. By mid-century, certainly in the 50s, this is the Jewish ex education that exists for the overwhelming majority of the American Jews, particularly the young. Here, schools like the Baltimore, this is, this is the Baltimore Hebrew College back in the 1920s. 
This represents the acme of Jewish education available to the vast majority of young Jewish boys and girls who come almost always from Orthodox families who are passionately interested in their Judaism. But there isn't what you have today, it's what you had at that time. And this is as good as it gets or as bad as it gets. Just take this across America. You had the equivalent in Gratz College in Philadelphia, and whatever, they, I forget what they call it in Chicago and in Cleveland and in Boston, they have a Hebrew college. And across the country, you have these sorts of things. Sometimes they call it a teacher's training college, sometimes they call it by other names. But this is, this is what exists at the high school level. For the few kids, the weirdos, they're actually interested in pursuing their Judaism after the bar mitzvah, after the bas mitzvah. Now, what they're going to do is they're going to get the kind of education that says what I just told you before. Forget about the fundamentalism. The Bible is a bunch of fairy tales, and let's move past that. Now, once we get that out of the way, let's talk about what Judaism really is, and let's engage with it in a vital sense, and so on and so forth. And in, in the 40s and 50s, in the period I'm talking about over here, um, it had a, a vitality. In cultural Zionism, the central focus is not on God and his Torah, but on the creation and development of a modern Jewish culture, fundamentally secular, or very liberally religious, which is almost the same thing. Now, since it's evident that the only place in the world it is possible to have a fully modern Jewish culture is Palestine, where the Yeshuv is nothing than Achadaism writ large, because the culture of the state of Israel, the culture of the pre-state Yeshuv, talking about the secular one, is the Achadaam culture. It is the culture of having it in the Vrit and having it as, a, as its a subject life in general, the secular life and, and, and everything that goes along with it. You know, Israeli secular poetry, Israeli secular art, Israeli secular uh, uh, production of culture and everything that goes with that. That being the case, the focus of attention of American Jews needs to be on the Yeshuv and its culture and not on the Torahs. And so hence, the, the, the basic uh, content of the education that I'm talking about in the Hebrew colleges across the country and their equivalent is very Israel-focused. Before the State of Israel, it's Yeshuv-focused. And after the State of Israel, it's State of Israel-focused. So what are we talking We're not talking about Gemara Rashi, Tosa, any of that. We're talking about Ivrit, Israeli dancing, Israeli art, Israeli books, or better yet, books by Americans about Israel, like Leon Uris, glorification of the kibbutz as the highest form of Jewish culture ever devised. Uh, these and similar subjects become the curriculum in the synagogues and the schools. I mean, some of you, I'm sure, in the honest, I see you know, did this, I'm sure. So notice that was what the content, the essence of Judaism was. For the intellectuals who want something more, there's the secular discipline known as Jewish history. Right? And it's very interesting to me that um, there's a plethora of, in the, in the 40s and particularly the 50s, there's an outbreak of popular one-volume books of Jewish history that appear all across the 40s and the 50s because you have this audience now that's interested in telling the story of the Jewish people in, in a single volume, uh, Cecil Roth, who really was a very distinguished historian, but his one-volume history of Jews are extremely, all these are superficial. Come on, how can you do one-volume history of Jews? Right? But on the other hand, I don't want to denigrate it. You know why? I'll tell you why I don't want to denigrate it. For somebody who doesn't know anything, it's, it's actually very valuable. How many, uh, let, let me just tell you something about Cecil Roth, um, who, by the way, was a Shomer Shabbos, but he was a secular historian, and, and, and eventually in Oxford. Uh, from England, he wrote a lot of his books. Cecil Roth wrote, wrote a book of the one volume, History of Jewish People, in 1935. And he's a Jewish Jew, and he was a Zionist Jew also. And he was a good guy. He's a very nice, uh, 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 very uh, Jewish Jew. And so he writes this volume, Up With the Jews. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's, it's a, it's a one-volume history of Jewish people which the Jews are the heroes and our enemies are the villains. I can't tell you how many letters he got in the 1930s, between 1935 and 1939 
from Europe, right? Primarily from Europe for people who say, I was going to commit suicide until I read your book. Because everything I see in the newspapers and everything I hear from the Nazi propaganda, which is spreading well throughout Europe in every culture, and everything I see from everywhere else, what I hear about the Jews, so negative that when I read your book, I got such a shot in the arm, I got a tchis amazing. Which is sad, but at the same time, you see the, 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 the positive possibilities that lie in the presentation of Jewish history. But, uh, the others aren't as good, but Grazel is a famous golden oldie. I'm sure many people went through that in the school, Solomon Grazel, where he was a conservative rabbi, but he tries to play very parv and not offend anybody. He was very successful in that. Uh, and then Abraham Sakar, uh, who was you know, a historian, and then he was with the Hillel and all the rest of it, and he's very super left-wing, Achadam type sorts of thing. These things were bought by the thousands, which is a lot in American Jewry. But my point is, this is the acme of American Jewish education. You understand? For the overwhelming 99% of American Jews, this is as good as it gets. You learn the Yavrit stuff, you learn the Israeli dancing stuff, you read a, maybe a couple of books, about, depending on what school you're in, you know, of this aspect of Jewish life, maybe read a couple of translated stories from Shalom Aleichem and things like this. And then when you want to get really serious, you read a couple of books along these lines, and now you're a highly educated Jewish person, which compared to the overwhelming majority of the rest of the Jews in the community in which you live, is a fact, and how sad that is. Right? You never heard the, the word, I don't know, you know, you know, Erevin, you know, they, they, they never heard the word, even the words, of core Jewish texts. But that's what it was. And so, um, this is what you get for the intellectuals. And yet, very interesting in America, because America always fools you when it comes to culture, the move towards secularism in American culture provokes a certain intellectual reaction in the post-war years among the Protestants. There's a certain revived theism, if you know the history of American uh, religion, certainly a renewed interest in theology. Uh, if you, if these are names that were famous once upon a time. Reinhold Niebuhr and his brother, they were big Protestant professors of theology. These books are written, they wrote about faith, and how can you have faith in modern time, and, um, and how can you really believe in a real God in the modern time, and they wrestle with these issues. Oh my God, I'll tell you right now, the conservative reform rabbi all knew these books better than they knew the, the, the Talmud Yerushalmi. They, <laughs> this was on, the, no, they made religion a reality, questions of faith, a reality in American life in the way that it wasn't elsewhere. And so what happens is something a little weird, and that is for intellectual Jews of a certain type, which usually were the thoughtful mid-century conservative reform rabbis, to be perfectly honest, uh, the, the, this will mean, no, we won't. This will mean an interest in Buber, in Heschel, Abraham Joshua Heschel, and Franz Rosenzweig. These are from Europe originally, primarily. Three very intense cultural Zionists interested in theology. Uh, once upon the, the, the 50s is the golden age of Abraham Joshua Heschel. Because his books uh, have a, a tremendous uh, um, sweep in American Jewry. And he's the most learned of them all. At the end of the day, Rosenzweig was a nice guy. Buber wasn't. And both of them were a tre tremendous, tremendous amorazim. Right? I mean, they knew nothing about, uh, you know, Shasta and Postkum and that sort of thing. They just didn't. Uh, Heschel did. He certainly did. He was a Talmud Chacham. And uh, he wasn't a fundamentalist. But, uh, so therefore, his books, even today, I, I run into people all the time who read these books on Shabbos and on the prophets and things like this. And it, it's a funny kind of situation because the American Jews, like the American Christians, are looking for some way to work out faith without the fundamentalism or to work out a kind of fundamentalism that would work for the second half of the 20th century. And, um, 
It's, it's, it's creation of a very unique American kind of phenomenon, but at the end of the day, the type of people that are interested is a small minority among American Jewry, sorry to say. You know, this at least calls for a lot of thought and, and uh, philosophy and the questions of theology and theodicy and all that sort of thing. And that's not, you know, the, 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 the few intellectuals in the different synagogues are the ones that are aware about this sort of thing. But this is, was the heart of the alternative Jewish culture that I'm describing over there. I mean, Heschel was a very big name in the, uh, in the 1950s. And uh, as I said before, he is uh, certainly no Amaretz. Uh, the books by these guys replaced the Talmud and the Postcum as the defining text of Judaism. Listen, if you want to know what Ju I'm still running to people like this. If you want to know what Judaism is, you won't tell somebody, go look at the Rambam. They'll say, go read Martin Buber. You see? You want to know what Judaism is? Go read Franz Rosenzweig, who's unreadable, but you know, read it anyway. <laughs> they, uh, uh, or, or read Heschel, who's very readable. Um, they're not interested in, in, in the kind of things that he's interested in, obviously, and somebody like Aaron Cutler. To sum up, the years 1952 to 56, and the 50s in general, were years when cultural Zionism reigned supreme and was indeed conflated with Judaism. Indeed, the main site for its practice was, in America, the Reformed Temple and the Conservative Synagogue. They didn't develop, in America, <coughs> as you had in Israel, secular institutions of perpetuation of, of cultural Zionism. In America, it was conflated and it was found in the synagogues and in the uh, temples and to the small degree of the students in, in the Hebrew colleges and that sort of thing with the very small numbers. Its obvious appeal lay in the fascination with the new state of Israel and with the new Judaism that was supposed to be arising in it, a new Judaism that was displacing and eventually replacing, or so it was thought, the old Judaism, a new Judaism that would keep Jews fully Jewish without having to give up eating crepe, no, still have Chinese food, and, and not being restricted to doing things on Shabbos. That's, that's what it boils down to. Um, people really thought it's happening. Now, there's always this talk about the new Jewish culture that's coming and the new Jewish thing, and the idea is something that it just never happened. But, <laughs> you know, the, the, the notion that something was going to happen really captured the imagination of a lot of people. A powerful element, interestingly, in the, of this in America in the 50s was what I would call the woman's world, the woman's zone, the realm where women practiced a new Judaism in this golden age, which combines that lost phenomenon uh, the non-working mother, <laughs> and the cultural notion of the separate female culture, which later on, uh, I mean, I'm not talking about egalitarianism over here, that's something different comes later. I'm talking about the, 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 uh, a kind of world that evolved on its own in America, in which there's a men's club zone and a women's club zone, so to speak, um, which very much part of the mid-century. Organizations like Hadassah and the Sisterhoods and the Ladies Auxiliaries all across North America flourished and I mean this really well, with a wealth of impressive activities, providing a full life of Jewish activities without having to keep the old laws. Uh, Henrietta Zold was held up to be the model Jewess, and she is the cultural Zionist icon. Henry Zold, of course, was the um, daughter of Rabbi Zold from Baltimore. Uh, I'll show you in, in a second. And uh, she, uh, let's put it this way, is very interested in religion. Uh, she was a theist, okay? Not a fundamentalist. She is a theist. And um, she never got married and so forth, and she devoted her life to Adasa and things of this nature, meaning she becomes a model of how someone, uh, and female too, in the early 20th century, can uh, create a whole huge movement within Judaism and invigorate the Jewish lives of many people um, within a cultural Zionist context by creative labor in, in, in Palestine. And how can you be against a hospital? <laughs> I mean, you know, it doesn't get better than that. 
you know, they combine it with, with, with the cause of, of medicine, but it's not simply that. She's also uh, the founder of Youth Aliyah, which you help kids escape from Hitler and make it to Palestine. I found a little speech that she gives about what the Youth Aliyah is doing in the 1930s over here. It's a move away from Iron Cutler. native. Now, uh, the great problem is that this is all rather uh, generation specific. It works for the parents who came themselves from immigrant parents or grandparents with the Yiddish and all that. It doesn't work as we know for the children, specifically the daughters in the 50s who go off to college and to encounter the great world out there. And they look back at the world of the uh, synagogue and Hadassah luncheons and the ZOA and the Jewish life and Judaism as petty, petty bourgeois and suffocatingly uh, provincial and vapid. It flourishes in the 50s, but as we all know, it doesn't in the 60s. By then, it's so out of date for the next generation of daughters of America. So this whole culture will have a, 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 you know, a, the same demographic, but it won't be able to bring in the new blood. I mean, it's a, quite a leap from the time you get from her to the 60s when these people taken from me are not interested in going to Adasa luncheons. Okay? And it, gets, and it gets, I think, even more intense when you get to Woodstock. Okay? We're there. This, this is not the world of Henry and his old. This is not the world of cultural Zionism, meaning it, it, it becomes bypassed by the uh, progressive movements of American culture. Um, this is brought out, fascinatingly, I would argue, in American culture and the controversy regarding the foremost Jewish novel of 1952 to 1956. Who can, who, who can figure out what, don't show it yet. Who can figure out what was the number one Jewish novel in 1952 to 56? What's that? Portnoy, that's, that's not written in 5256. He's got it. Margie Morningstar. Okay. Right? Which, I want to tell you something. This, to me, this is a very interesting episode since I'm dealing with the years 52 to 56 and tells you very, uh, tells you very fascinating things about American culture in general and American Jews and American Jewish culture and all the rest of it. Margie Morningstar, if you haven't read the book, she's a uh, girl from uh, the Bronx and uh, religious uh, at that time, right? Religious, uh, we would say today, very modern religious, and uh, she's going to college, Hunter College, and she dreams of the, a better life. And she wants to uh, be an actress and on the stage and have a real career and drama, and she pursues that dream, and she ends up having an affair with another Jewish guy who's, who seems to promise that world. But here's the point. By the time the whole story's over, what's the end? 
<laughs> Marjorie Morningstar marries Milton Schwartz. He's a CPA. She lives in, in the suburbs. She's religious. She's in the Hadassah. She belongs to the synagogue over there. And so I can't tell you the end shocked the literary critics. They hated it. You understand? The way it's supposed to be is she breaks out of the suffocating environment of the Jewish family. She gets out into Paris, into the big world, and la-di-da, you know, and everything goes in there. From the point of view, uh, he, the end of the book is he has her character, her cousin, say, she, you know, she's now a regular synagogue observer. She's active in the Jewish organization in the town, and they seem to be rather strictly observant. This is the wrong ending. <laughs> From the point of view of the elites, the literati, Marjorie has made the wrong choice. The Jewish critics, when the book comes out in 1955, go wild, and they hate the book, and they say it's terrible, and all the rest of it. You go to Norman Potteritz, when he was still in his liberal uh, phase at the editor of Commentary. Commentary is the Jewish magazine. They're supposed to know everything, right? Oh, that's the wrong book. And, and, and the guy killed it with the ending, and, it's, and he missed, you know, the, Herman Wouk, who wrote the book, is obviously out of date, and he's off the stars, and it's sending the wrong messages. This book will go nowhere. Well, guess what? It sold more than Gone with the Wind. I'm serious. It sold more than Gone with the Wind. It's the, it was the highest um, uh, best-selling, in terms of buyers, best-selling book, like in the first half of the 20th century or something like that. It's incredible. You understand? It's more than Theodore Dreiser and more than this and that. You know, it, it, it's quite remarkable. In other words, it's not all Jews that bought it. You know, the book swept the Geisha market. That, no, 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 that, that, that's the interesting part. It's fascinating, which shocks and horrifies the critics, you understand? The guy who loved the books, as I just told you before, Herman Woke becomes, like, he already had just published two years before the Kane Mutiny and got the Pulitzer Prize, and now he published the Marjorie Morningstar. It's the wrong message. You know, Herman Woke is orthodox. By this time, he had moved to, the, to that position in life. He, he, was, he, he was like Yisro. He was here, he was there, he was everywhere. He ended up being uh, religious, and, and openly so. You know, I almost feel like I'm saying openly gay, you know? He said, oh, open, that, that's what it was like in the 50s. He says, open, openly, openly orthodox, it's absolutely strong. The guy loved the book, and I want to tell you something. They loved to portray the Gentiles in America who buy this book by the millions. He got very rich off of this. He says, they, wait a second, they loved the portrayal of regularly traditional religious Jews and their ceremonies. Even the movie, now before you show anything, even the movie becomes a bestseller, but the movie they had Hollywood, the Jews in Hollywood couldn't stand the ending. And so they changed the movie to have a different middle and a different ending because they won't have it. You understand? I, I don't know, it was MGM or it was uh, Warner Brothers or one of these types of guys, the self-hating Jews. They cannot have Natalie Wood, you know, at the end become, you know, Rebison or something like that. <laughs> you understand? She can't go to Colel. This is this doesn't work. Right? And so they have to give a they have to give a different ending. And Herman Wilk at that time wanted the money enough that he let him change the, change, change the thing. But even so, right, the, the movie came out a little bit later, like in 1957, 58, something like that. Uh, this is Eisenhower's America. And the movie was a bestseller also. It's, it made uh, oodles of money. So it's not Jews that are going to see this only. It's the whole public who fell in love with the character precisely because, even though it's Jewish, it's capturing an American uh, uh, issue that they're all struggling with which is, what does the young girl do? On the one hand, she hears all the messages from the professors and the teachers that she should go to the left, and she should get out. But she also has the other pull, which she's almost ashamed to say, she does like her mother, you know? She does like the world, is she? She would like to be like that, right? And, and which, way, which way is it going? Uh, I'm gonna show you a little clip over here. Uh, 
Because I'm always interested, as a historian, I'm always interested in movies, which shows us as, as, as insights into the social culture of the time and the messages they send. What I'm going to show you now is a, a small piece. Is the first time you ever see in Hollywood that they portray religious Jews, uh, a, a synagogue. It's not, it wasn't portrayed before, except in Al Jolson's jazz singer. That's the only other time, right? Which was a different thing altogether. It, 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 for the American audience, and it's very respectful, okay? And it's, uh, it's not something to make fun of. It, and it's an Orthodox synagogue, because he never mechitz, even though the boys and girls are winking at each other and so forth. There's the good old mechitz of the 50s, you know, everything's very low. But, but, but nevertheless, it's, it's, it's making things, and the public, the American public, notice the, the Christians, they ate it up, right? Take a look at this. They're going to show. Going for a bar mitzvah. missing is Mr. Reich. <laughs> right? No, but you see my point? Is this presented as something primitive or bad or something opposite? Okay? The, the Jews have arrived. The Jewish religion is just as legitimate as the Protestant, as the Catholic, and, and, and so forth. You see? And so here you have a situation where the Jewish machers, the big literary critics, and the others say, oh, the, the whole book is too Jewish and too traditional, and then she makes the wrong choice with all the rest of it. The biggest fan in America, Henry Luce, Mr. Wasp. You understand? He owned Time Magazine and look at all the other things like this. You don't get more right wing. There's a famous poem, Foster Dulles, Henry Luce, GOP hypotenuse. <laughs> the, the, uh, it's a famous thing. So uh, he falls in love with the book. Luce, who's a guy, delights in Woke's snubbing of the Jewish literati who delight in dissing the American middle-class culture. He puts Woke, Herman Woke, on the cover of Time magazine with a glowing article praising Woke as a Jewish Jew with a chipless shoulder. You understand? Take a look at this. <laughs> That's Marjorie Mortimer. You understand? And they say, she, uh, what do you call it? He's a devout Jew with ears to dietary prohibitions and ritual. The Time magazine is celebrating this, and the Jewish critics are going crazy. You know, they, 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 they can't stand it. And they even say, and, and they even describe, I mean, Time Magazine, all people, they even describe Marjorie Morningstar as an American every girl who just happens to be Jewish. 
I mean, he captured something in there. So it turns out the religious ones, the, the Goyim, are saying that the religious ones is the real Jewish the, with whom they feel the most comfortable. It's, it's, a, it's a very interesting moment in 50s culture. Um, and of course, Herman Welk can say, I guess, Chavder al body said to the Lyricards, I'm crying all the way to the bank. The other Jewish writers cannot understand how a successful writer can be a Shomer Shabbos. Don't you have to sell out to make it in the modern world? I want to show you something very, very interesting. A two-minute piece or so from Homer Book, who's 99. This is a few years ago when it was, when it was a young 90 or something like that. Not, not long ago at all. And I found it online. And he's giving a speech in some uh, university in California, somewhere like that, where they, they name him the Herman Wolf Wing or something like that. And he's giving readings and talking about his experience. He's sitting with the Yamaka. This is, uh, you know, to, to a general audience. And he's discussing the question, am I a Jewish writer? Because he says whenever he talks about Jewish writers, they always leave out Herman Wolf. As you say, if I ask somebody who's a Jewish writer, Philip Roth, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, Malamud and all these other jokes, you know. He says, everybody's a, everybody's a big Jewish writer. Herman Wolf, eh, he's, he's not a writer. And he's saying, he is, but he tells a very interesting episode from the 50s. Like, you take a look at this. Every author who acquires a name has what you might call a signature novel. I think <clears throat> Professor Berman would agree that Ernest Hemingway's signature novel is The Sun Also Rises. For, uh, uh, Fitzgerald's is almost without a doubt The Great Gatsby. And mine, of course, has been kind enough to mention this decaying mutiny. And that, too, bears on this theme that I'm delivering here of the strange, <clears throat> the strange fact that I really am not, or haven't been until recently, known as a Jewish writer. Pain Union was published almost day and date with a really powerful, wonderful army story called From Here to Eternity by James Jones of Schumacher. And a great movie was made of it. So it was a while catching on. <clears throat> but then it came. I can say so now, after 50 years, a, a most tremendous bestseller. I mean, it's, it's a once in a lifetime sort of thing. And there, my, my wife and I were in the chips. So we took a transatlantic voyage, first class, Queen Mary. Doesn't exist anything. Luxury like that doesn't exist. And as I was walking along the deck, first class, I had the once in a lifetime experience of seeing one person after another sitting in these deck chairs, reading a cane mutiny. And there was one gentleman whom I recognized who was not reading a cane mutiny. In fact, he wasn't reading, he was sitting looking out to sea. I recognized him immediately. A wonderful, craggy face and a shock of iron gray hair. It was Sholomash, great Yiddish novelist. Controversial because of his Christological trilogy, but you know, an unmistakably great one of the great authors of the day. Well, on impulse, I went up to him and speaking Yiddish, which of course I could. I congratulated him on his, on his work, and he accepted the compliment with gracious condescension. <laughs> and then I, I mentioned that I, I just published a book called The King Mutiny. He stared at me. His eyes opened wide, almost popped out, and he said, You're the author of 
the cane union? I thought you must be a big blonde goy. <laughs> you haven't heard the best yet. And that evening we invited him to dinner. And he came to the very discreetly marked kosher section. The Queen Mary was wonderful. It was just in the room the others, but the silverware and the dishes were very discreetly marked with a mug and dummy. We were sitting at the table. The maitre d' led Sholamash to our table, came to the table, he picked up the cutlery, he looked at the plate, and he says, the author of the cane mutiny eats kosher, and Sholamash doesn't. <laughs> I consider that... These are, 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 I'm interested in this because these, these are like Kodak moments, you understand? Of, of Eisenhower's Religious America. Right? And it's an, an, an a message from those who are not Jewish, which was, we want Christians to be faithful to Christianity, and we feel comfortable with Jew, Jews who are faithful to Judaism. It's, it's interesting. Um, and I'm sure you know, Herman Wolk went on, it's very interesting to me, he had a very interesting career because all of his books were knocked by the critics and, uh, and, and bought up by the zillions by the, by, by the public. So uh, I guess if you have your choice between praise and millions, you know. Uh, and of course he went on a few years later to write, uh, this is my God, I'm sure everybody knows that. So uh, to Orthodox Jews, at that time there's a shot in the arm. To non-Orthodox cultural Zionists, um, they rather interpreted it as an affirmation, keep up a vigorous Jewish culture. Unfortunately, Marjorie Morningstar is rather exceptional. As time goes on, the girls and guys will be less interested in that kind of a culture. But in, 52 to 50, in the 50s and mid-50s, this model still held. Uh, the fatal flaw, of course, in cultural Zionism and the whole culture I'm talking about was its lack of cultural creativity. Jewish illiteracy, which could not help but create a rather vapid and culturally superficial Jewishness, whose iconic representation, of course, was the 1950s bar mitzvah. Need I say any more, right? You know, it was all bar and no mitzvah, as, as they put it over there. But we're, 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 all, we're all familiar with this. And, uh, and, and, it's, and, and, I mean, it's an icon already. You know, bar mitzvah is when you end your Jewish school. Right? Bar mitzvah is when you have paid your price and now you can go on to live a normal life and everything that goes along with that. I don't need to explain that to this culture. But still, in the 50s, cultural Zionism held its way. In Israel, of course, cultural Zionism has a totally free field. And indeed, a Hebrew-speaking society, an entire civilization was created. Though the situation was complicated by the influx of non-Hebrew speakers and masses of people with no education whatsoever. I mean, in the 50s, you talk about the Ma'abarot, the mass immigration. They're not interested in a Haram and creation of society. They just want to, you know, the, the parents won't really learn Hebrew very well at all. And the second generation, of course, will. And uh, even today in Israel, you can go to places where they still speak French and so forth from the old days. And, you know, they'll just try to be... High culture is not on their agenda. Let's put it that way. The Haram model will be restricted in the 50s and afterwards to a small elite. Actually, the, usually the graduates of the gymnasia, there aren't many, but there are some good ones in Israel. These would produce a, natural, a national culture, a secular culture, with no reform or conservative religious movements, because in Israel, that's not the way it went. It went for strictly secular and, and, and atheist, to be frank. And uh, they'll create an entire culture over there. It won't capture the imagination of the world. It'll be a culture of a country, like every culture has its country. Um, Khanam imagined that the culture produced 
that would be produced in the state of Israel would be like the French culture, the Russian culture, American culture that sweep the world. It swept Israel, you know. Now, um, that, that's how, I mean, Ben-Gurion will always be talking in the 1950s that Israel is creating a culture will be Orla Goyim, a light unto the nations. Some of us are old enough to remember what they used to talk about that. Uh, say that today. It's, it's, it's a joke. You know I mean? It's actually a bad joke. Israel's glad to hold one period. Um, but not, that's not the way they saw it at that time. Unlike Acharam's predictions, the culture would not capture the cultural imagination of the diaspora. What will, capture the what will capture the imagination of the Jews of the diaspora is this. Right? Well, that's a fact. The Israeli army and Moshe Dayan, that will thrill people. You bring an Israeli speaker, I mean, excuse me, Israeli writer to a synagogue or a temple in 1955. Uh, you bring Moshe Dayan there, whoa, right? You'll sell out. Who wouldn't? So you know, that, that's what it is. The problem was that the cultural Zionist scheme of things, education, should emanate out of Israel to the diaspora. And indeed, in the 50s, every community had a shlichim, right? A shlich for all the different types of groups. And I mean multiple groups, because Israel has all party organized. So the Benanki will have Ishliach, and the Habonim will have Ishliach, and the ZOE group will have Ishliach, and the, the Histadru will have Ishliach, and so forth. But there's a certain paradox, a kind of dysfunctionality built into the system. The traditional goal of Judaism is to buttress Judaism wherever it's located, within the communities. That's what Judaism, Jewish culture, and education has been for thousands of years. But Ben-Gurion doesn't want that. He wants the Jews in diaspora to view themselves as Judaically worthless, the Judaism that they practice, the Judaism that they, the culture they maintain, to be without meaning, so that they will realize that the only way to be Jewish is to make Aliyah move to Israel. So you see what I'm saying? It's actually undermining, interestingly, the notion of a kind of vital Judaism in the diaspora. Now, this was not the opinion of the cultural Zionists. Mordechai Kavna, Hanam, and all these people didn't want that. But it was viewed the view of Ben-Gurion, and he was the big shot. Right? He's the one who, who controlled the budgets, and he's the one who had his way. Now, Bishlema, if they move to Israel, I understand that. Then you can, but nobody in the 50s from the West is moving to Israel. Hardly anyone is. The result is that whatever Jew Judaic messages emerging from Israel or from the WZO were conflicted and garbled. They certainly did not grab the attention of the children who were not really planning, really, to live in a kibbutz. You can count on your fingers the number were like that. And who were receiving, who were receiving in America and in England and around the world no intelligent Jewish education with clear ideals and directives on exactly how one was supposed to live an intense Jewish life in America or anywhere else in the diaspora. After all, this is a secular, at least a non-fundamentalistic Judaism being pervaded over here. What is the, how does one do it? There is no, you just, just support Israel, right? And better yet, move there. And if you can't move there, give them money. And that's it. If that becomes the essence of what being Jewish is, it's hard to keep that imagination. It's, it's not an ideal. It's hard to, hard to keep it going beyond a generation. The result is an education that signally fails to capture the interest of the young Hebrew, of, of the young. I mean, Hebrew school is an ugh in the 1950s and afterwards, as we all know. And how many go after bar mitzvah? I need only ask that question. So that is the story of cultural Zionism in its heyday in the, in, in the early 50s. Socialist Zionism, labor Zionism, had captured the imagination of a segment of the immigrant generation in the diaspora. Uh, there were plenty of people who came from Poland, from Russia, those kind of places. They came to America and identified with socialism in this country and therefore supported uh, groups like Ben-Gurion and the, and the Mapai and the Mapam and similar types of groups in, uh, in, in Eretz Yisrael, the Histadrut, and so forth. And, and there it is. Uh, out of its ranks came many who worked actively for Zionist causes in the Histadrut. But 
1952 and to 56, doctrinaire socialism is not in vogue among the young in America or in Israel. They're past that. These, I mean, the children of these socialist workers and uh, you know activists in the New York garment industry. Well, guess what? They don't live in that area. They moved elsewhere. They're doctors. They're lawyers. Thank you very much. You know, they'll they'll write a check if the father asks them to whatever organization. But it's the it, it, it's not what it's, it's not what really interests them. Okay, uh, the slogans of yesteryear seem outdated and more fitted to the East European reality than to the American. And Eastern European reality has been wiped out by the Holocaust. Thank you very much. And so, in simple English, the children, certainly the grandchildren, the labor Zionists, are not interested in that stuff. This is a social process already visible in the 50s, when labor Zionism ages without young blood to replenish the ranks. So over and over again, last week and this week, I'm talking again, over and over again about this very interesting phenomenon that you see all across the map, the ideological map among Jewry, which is a certain thing that works for the, for the generation that grew up in the 10s, 20s, 30s, and 40s, but will not work for their kids. And so this generation will be active in the 10s, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, whatever, and then they're just old, and the kids aren't interested, and the thing will just fold, as we know. That's why this landscape today looks so different. Finally, there's religious Zionism in Israel and America. In, in Israel, religious Zionism is, in, is, is embodied in the political process and in the Kulturkampf, because from the very beginning of Israel in 1948, the question is, what's the country going to look like? And the, and the politics is too complex for me to go into at this late hour. But the point is that the Mizrahi movement was founded eventually in 1955 or 56. The two branches, the Apollo Mizrahi and the regular Mizrahi, joined in what we call the National Religious Party. They were always part of Ben-Gurion's coalition, always. They made it their business to be part of the government. Therefore, they always got part of the budgets and so forth. And they create a, a, a let's put it this way, they copy the Mapai, they just have a yarmulke and a mezuzah. That's what it boils down to. Whatever the socialist majority parties do, the Mizrahi will do. So if they have, you know, kibbutzim, then they'll have kibbutzim. They have a, a whole uh, network of schools and, and youth groups. They'll try to do the same one with the yarmulke and a mezuzah and all the rest of it. And so the years 1952 to 56 see a big struggle that the Mizrahi in Israel has to fight for a piece of the money in order to build and maintain their institutions, which they do. It's difficult. Ben-Gurion gives them a hard time. There's a lot of bitter battles. The bitter battles are school battles, usually. You understand? Here's a new settlement, and the government's creating a new settlement. The government's putting in a, a, a public school, but it's a public school of their type, which means they're going to brainwash the kids in their way. The Mizrahi said, no, we want a religious school to brainwash the kids in our way. And this is, no, really, and this, this is how to bat, and Ben-Gurion will try to say, we don't have the money now, and they'll scream, they'll threaten to leave the government, and this and that and the other. Finally, they'll get something or they won't in the different areas. And they are creating a parallel universe. It's so interesting, as I'm sure all of us are aware. In Israel, you have, certainly in the past, parallel communities living, coexisting. There'll be a secular community, then there'll be the religious Zionist community, the Kippah, as we call today, living in a parallel universe, and the Haredi community living in a parallel universe, and the Arabs living in a parallel universe. That's how they do it in Israel. They're all coexisting at the same time, and they're all cohabiting, as it were, the same space, but one has nothing to do with the other, really. Uh, this is the way it turns out in Israel. I can only point out that the Mizrahi benefits from the big 1953 law when uh, Ben-Gurion, to put it bluntly, wiped out the labor uh, school system, the, the socialist school system, merged it with the regular school, uh, public school system, so there ends up being a single, not two, a single secular public school system across the country with, day school, uh, with uh, elementary schools and high schools, and uh, they, they deprived the socialists of their schools, even though he was a socialist, and uh, the result is it makes it a little easier for the Mizrahi 
to expand their school system, and they do it primarily among the, uh, the immigrants who are Sephardic and come from more traditional backgrounds. Um, education will be highly politicized uh, throughout 1952 to 56, and the struggle, as they say, vitalizes the movement. The adults are energized by fighting with Ben-Gurion. Here's Ben-Gurion and Rabbi Maimon, who were best friends and kicked and screamed at each other all the time. You understand? But it kicked and screamed over the issues that I'm pointing out. That the Mizrahi said, we want more Yiddish guy, we want to have more mezuzahs, so to speak, we want to have more schooling particularly. Uh, they will, uh, the, the beginnings of the movement to start, uh, the right wing and the left wing of the religious Zionist movement, start in the years 52, 56, but really happen afterwards. They, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, on the right wing, I'm talking about uh, KBY, the notion of the, re, of the religious Zionist, but intense yeshiva, with no English, with no secular studies. And then on the left, the Barilan. Okay? So these represent two different trends. And once again, the Barilan and the yeshiva will cohabit the same narrow cultural space, and that's the Israeli reality. As for the youth, um, the B'nai Kiva is vital during these years, but the educational system is anemic, which is exactly why they see it, why eventually um, they'll lose a lot of people to the, uh, what we call the Aguda world, and, uh, and what the best and brightest often. And so to, to, to fight against that, they'll have to upgrade the Mizrahi school system to provide at least X number of really elite high schools in which the learning is, is very good together with the secular studies, and eventually you have their own parallel set of yeshivot. Right? Otherwise, as often happens, the most idealistic of the youth will then say, I want to go to Panovich. And that would be considered a failure of the system. As a philosophy, though, religious Zionism was energized by the reality of statehood. Religious Zionism had rather clear cultural ideals, which was to convert the state to orthodoxy. And if this was not a realistic goal in the foreseeable future, it was a genuine ideal, and it motivated religious Zionists to make as, as fine a contribution to the state as they could, always trying to make a Kiddush Hashem. So, for example, when you see the religious soldier, right, uh, that was you know, almost the apotheosis of the uh, Mizrahi culture because they want to say like this, it doesn't get better than this. The guy's religious, and he's showing the rest of the Israelis who are not religious, we fight too and, 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 and fight and die, and they were totally legitimate, and the guy who is the medal gets the yarmulke. Now, I put over here a good story from, from um, the years 52 to 56 with Rabbi Gorin, who I'm sure you remember, was for, for more than 15 years, the chaplain, the, the chief rabbi of the Israeli army. What happened was that um, in 48, uh, the, uh, a lot of the Jewish fighting forces, like the Palmach, were very anti-religious. They came from a palm and place like that. And so a lot of the officers weren't religiously sensitized. And so when they had soldiers who were religious, they cut off the payas and cut off the beards and did all kinds of stuff to them, making them work on Shabbat. And this left a lot of bad blood. But during the 48, 49 war, nobody had time to deal with it. But after the 49 war was over, Ben-Gurion didn't want to have this because we have enough trouble with the Arabs. We can't have four fights within Sahal. And so he, uh, for that reason, in order to have the unity, Ben-Gurion instituted what we would call a religious sensitivity program or appointed Rabbi Gurion to be the chief chaplain of the army. And, and they said, I guess, you work with the soldiers. He was there to be constructive, right? Not, not to be contrary. And it worked. He, it, you know, little by little, they made that the whole Israeli army Definitely has total respect for anybody who has religious issues, kashrus issues, yantiv and shabbos issues, all within a, a framework, all the rest of it. And in order to do this, he had to get the validation from the commanders. Ariel Sharon was a major. I know Sharon just died, so I'll tell you a story. Ariel Sharon was a major at that time with that unit, that uh, special commander unit 101. And Rabbi Gordon is, a, is, is, a, is he Rabbi, he's in the process of making sure that every unit in the army has kosher, whether they like it or not. And he goes to Ariel Sharon and says, your unit also too. And Sharon was, like the, Sharon was super secular. 
It doesn't get, he doesn't have a mezuzah in the house, you know, nothing. And so Sharon says, uh, what do you call it? Um, why should I have a kosher kitchen? There's not one religious soldier in the unit. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's, if you had one, but it's not one. Every one of these guys who are these tough fighters is not religious. So Goran said, I guess, so I'm joining. So he said, like this, then you have to do the parachute training also. I'll do it. And he jumped in the parachute, broke his leg. But <laughs> look, it wasn't a parachute. But, but Sharon went to him in the hospital. He said, like this, your son of a gun will, will make a kosher. <laughs> no, yeah, that's a very 50 story. Do you get what I'm saying? That's a, that's a very 50 story, right? That you want to show the, and for the religion, it doesn't get better than that. He earned their, right? He didn't force it down their throat. He did it the right way. It's, it, I, I share that with you, not only because last week uh, uh, Ara Shon passed away, but because it's very much iconic story of the 50s. Fascinatingly, the political leadership of the Mizrahi movement is very cautious and pacifist. It's not what you think, the Gush and Benim or anything like that. Uh, Dr. Berg, Yitzhak Rafael, Moshe Shapiro, they're always, whenever there's a cabinet battle between Ben-Gurion and Sharet, they vote for Sharet. When Ben-Gurion says, let's have another retaliation, or Moshe says, let's go to war, they always vote against it. Because they're very afraid of, look, that the religious should be blamed for causing a war or something like that. Therefore, they're always very pacifist. Plus, they also have, as religious Jews do, I remember my father was like that also. He said, we're lucky we got Israel. Don't tamper with it. You get it? You remember this? That's the kind of thing. It's, it's unbelievable that we got what we have. Right? Don't cause any, God forbid America should do something. The United Nations should. That was their mentality over there. Whereas to Moshe Sharet, uh, to Moshe Dayan or Ben-Gurion, uh, you know, that's the Galut mentality. You understand? We make the decisions over here. So it's a, it's a culture change. Within the religious Zionist culture, a vigorous messianism captures the, the, the attention of the young. But nobody saw it at the time. So starting in the 50s and, and, and later on, the, the, uh, the, since the 48 war had sort of been now in the past, by the time we get to 52, 53, people had um, assimilated the basic message that 48 was only a half. Okay? Uh, Yerushalayim, the Kotel, is still in the Arab hands. Uh, Hebron, the Shtachim, and all the rest, all the famous Jewish places in the Arab hands. If you're part of the, uh, what do you call it, the Gush Etzion, uh culture, so they were kicked out of Gush, we're going to go back. And uh, this really starts in 52 to 56, if you take the trouble to read it. I don't have time to maybe in the next year or something go into more. But um, as, as we know, this would come to fruition after 67. Um, overseas, the religious Zionism suffers from the same problem that it has till today. And they'll be the first to admit it. The best and the brightest make Aliyah. So they leave everyone else behind. Right? It weakens the, the group. You know, the classic story. That the Bene Akiva group, this and that, and the other, the guy get really into it, they leave. They go to Israel. So who's left in Baltimore or in Cleveland or anything like that? Uh, in America, the religious Zionism suffers from what I would call a reverse Goldilocks syndrome, okay? Uh, which means that it's, 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 it's not... It's, it's not strong enough on the right. It's not strong enough on the on the left. It's it's in the middle, and people see that as as, as anemic. You know, if they go to Lakewood, I hear that. If they go the other direction, I hear that. If it's in the middle, so it seems like uh, it's it, 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 it has the worst of both worlds. In the years fifty-two to fifty-six, religious Zionism in this country again loses some of its best and brightest, uh, more than a few, to the Shiva world. This is when the boys from those kind of schools and from YU elsewhere start going to places like Lakewood, then near Israel, to Chaim Berlin, and, 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 and so forth. On the other hand, in 1956, you have this very famous, um, uh, which I say, episode where Rabbi Salavetsky becomes a card-carrying member switching from the uh, Agoda. Look what he wrote. He said, I was not born, Rabbi Salavetsky, I was not born in a Zionist household. 
My parents' ancestors, my father's house, were far from the Mizrahi religious Zionists. My, my own links with Mizrahi grew only gradually. I had my doubts about the validity approach. I mean, he's the grandson of Chaim Brisker, for crying out loud. These are intensely anti-Zionistic. I built an altar in which I sacrificed sleepless nights. That's his kind of talk, you know. And uh, he doubts and reservations. He's, he's, that, that's his rhetoric style. Um, regardless, the, the, period, the years of the Hitler Holocaust, established state of Israel, come to Mizrahi, convinced me of the correctness of our movement's past. The altar still stands today with smoke rising from it, meaning the carbonus of the, of the show-off of the Holocaust. Jews like me required to sacrifice the altar peace of mind as well as social relationships and friendships. So by going with Mizrahi, I'm losing my relatives. They're the ones in Israel, boycott them, and so on and so forth. Yeshua doesn't like me, but I don't want to call the spade a spade. In 1956, and we're talking about the years 50 to 56, uh, Rabbi Soloveitchik did a very famous speech called Kol Dodi Dofek, right? Which is a remarkable work, recently translated, I think recently, into English, if you're actually interested in it. It's, a, it's very thought-provoking, and um, it's a Yiddish speech. In simplest terms, the rise of Israel right after the Shoah is Yad Hashem, and needs to be acknowledged that way in unambiguous theological uh, tones. Uh, you know, I mean, he does it in a much more elaborate way. I don't have the time, especially this late hour, to go into that. You could do a lecture just on the Kol and I bet you there's a bunch of them on the internet or something like that. And um, uh, I just want to make a few points. Yeah. This is from Shir Shirim. Uh, maybe you've heard that. Called uh, it this boy and a girl in the metaphor, and the girl's sleeping. She's always looking for the, for the beloved, for the Dodi. And then she goes home and she you know, gets in pajamas, as we would say today, and she's already asleep. And then finally, the boy comes and knocks on the cold of the fake. And she's too, too, too asleep and so forth to go to go at the door. Until by the time she finally rouses himself, herself to go into the door, he's gone. And she spends the rest of her life looking. That's the Sherry Shem in, in short. And, uh, you know, opportunity knock. God knocks on the door. Okay? And, and, and how, does, uh, how does God knock on the door? He, so, he says, he, he sees six knocks. You understand? And uh, they're quite remarkable. Did I, did I put them down yet? Uh, I'll, I'll read it to you very, very brief, briefly, or maybe I'll say it out loud because of the time. One, one knock is uh, uh, the Holocaust, you know. Uh, one knock is the establishment of Israel. This is God telling you, I'm here. Uh, one knock is in the theological re results of it, which are that uh, the Christians have been saying for a thousand years that Jews are losers, they don't have a country, they're rejected. He obviously was very close to Christian theology, he took this very seriously. And now they can't say anything, and they don't know what to do with it. And uh, one of the knocks is that we beat the Arabs, the, the Israeli army beat them. And you see, Jewish blood is not cheap for the first time in history. And you see over here that it gives the young people uh, a sense of hope about being Jewish in the future, and, uh, and so on and so forth. You know, it's, 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 it's quite a remarkable work. Like I say, I'm not going to do justice to it at this point, but he's, he's coming out and saying, yes, I'm a car-carrying Zionist. <laughs> you see? You see? And, and, I, and I have uh, profound hashkafa reasons for, for doing it. Um, and boy, oh boy, he, he, tears, he, he, he tears into uh, Dulles, and Nasser over there, and uh, it's very much a timepiece. Right? It's a timeless message, a timepiece, where he says, you know, John Zoster Jones hates us. He said in Congress for Senator Commission, where a Senate, commi a Senate a committee meeting, he asked him, why do the Arabs hate the Jews? He says, because they, they killed their God, which, of course, the Arabs didn't kill Muhammad. He says, see, he was a psychologist. Dulles is, is speaking about himself. You understand? Because they killed the Christian guys. That shows you what antisemite is, you know, without saying it. And I'm not saying that's true. I'm telling you what Zerubi Salvation says. And uh, Hitler, I mean, and Nasser, and forget in the British Foreign Office, he goes on and on and on about this. And, uh, and therefore, I feel it's necessary to, if my beloved is knocking on the door, we should do something about it.
as, as basically what it comes into. It's much more elaborate than that, but it's, it's, it's really a remarkable moment in the history of religious Zionism, especially in the United States. Uh, he bashes himself as well as the rest of American Jews for being inactive during the Holocaust. He said, what did we do? We, we, we were supposed to be brothers and sisters, and we didn't do anything. And he didn't do anything. I mean, you know, I mean, obviously he's a somewhat active about it, and all that. But, you know, what did most people do during the years 42, 43, 44, 45? He didn't run every five minutes to Morgantown and so forth. And he's saying, he, he even says, we Orthodox Jews are worse than the others because we're cheaper than the others, we're more narrow-minded than the others. It's quite an interesting kind of a document. Um, the, and, and particularly, uh, you know, we're inexcusably unwilling to theologically touch up, shall I say, they define the significance of the Jewish state for so long. Let me put it in simple terms for, for a, a, a big audience. Uh, you know, I understand him, and it, this is what he says. I understand this position, and understand this position. I don't understand this position. You get it? In other words, you can say that the uh, rise of the state of Israel is a Yemosa Mashiach or something like that. I repeat, something like that. It's a very positive uh, sign. It's God knocking on the door. You can say the opposite. It's the work of the devil. Right, that, that, that you can. There's a there certainly is a whole coherent way of over here. What, what is he? What is there good to say? You see, he said, I don't, I don't, I don't like this approach. There's nishta and nishta here, and so uh, it's kind of interesting in that regard. And of course, he, as I said before, he lists the positive benefits caused by Israel. He has a very strong approval of the bloody reprisal raids. Oh my goodness! He says yes, yes, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I say push up shop. Let's do it. If the Arabs kick us, he says, he says, I believe in the Gemara, eye for eye, tooth for tooth means a monetary payment, but once in a while it means it literally, and if it's Nasser, it's two eyes for two tooths, and, and so forth. He's, you know, he, he, he's a fan of Ariel Sharon um, in the 50s. He's full of references, I say, to Nasser and Dolls. All this gets zero traction in the Yeshiva world. First of all, the speech was in Yiddish, and to be perfectly honest, the boys that are coming now, certain Yeshiva don't understand Yiddish. They learn enough to go and talk to the Russian Yeshiva or something like that, but they're not really Yiddish-speaking. Uh, it speaks to parents who are rabbis of shuls, etc. You know, it's, in other words, it's, it's, a, it's a speech to be very powerful to adult group. But who are the adult group in the 50s in the Orthodox world? You see, it's not the young. Their sons in Lakewood near Israel tells the Chaim Berlin they can't, they, they can't read the speech and the words wouldn't mean anything to them. You know, and so, uh, no, <laughs> you know, it doesn't get traction over there. Would this approach be able to get traction among a, single, a significant portion of American Orthodox youth? This was the question about the future or non-future of religious Zionism in America during the years 1952 to 56. Mainly, mainly, how will it play out? What will the future after 1956 uh, develop into? But that is something that's for next year, and now I say to you, good night. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.